Last week, we started one of three weeks on Puritans, Separatists, and Pilgrims. Last week, we did Puritans. Guess which ones we're doing this week? Separatists. That's a good start. Let's do it. Last week, we looked at Puritans. This week, let's look at Separatists. To do this, we need to go back to Europe. That's where we are. This is... Can we bring down the house or the lights just a little bit, please, Mike, so that the, the screen's a little clearer? And by the way, if I'm not mistaken, Stephen Trammell's teaching for me next week. Is that right, Stephen? Now he's locked in, okay? <laughs> Woo! That's a lawyer contract, man. We got it right here. That's enforceable, okay? And uh, um, uh, uh, I want to say thank you to you ahead of time. It allows uh, our family to go on vacation. Okay, this is Europe. Uh, it's a NASA satellite view, so we should say thank you to them. Actually, to y'all. It's our tax money that did it. Um, basically, indirectly, we took that picture. Um, this is the area uh, that we want to focus on. That's uh, England, by and large. Great Britain, I guess we could call it. That's a zoom. Uh, actually, it's a different picture, but it's that square area, if you will. Now, to orient you for England, there's London up there. Everybody oriented? Today, we want to talk about four little towns that are all in a little area together up in what's considered the Midlands of England. This is the eastern portion of the Midlands of England. These towns are Scrooby, <laughs> home of Scrooby Dooby Doo. Uh, we've got Babworth up there with Scrooby. We've got Gainsborough, and last but not least, Osterfield. And these are small towns in the late 1500s that we're looking at this morning. We're going to start with a little village church in a town called Babworth. This church had been established in the 1200s. It's pretty old. It's older than like Champion Forest Baptist. This church had been established in the 1200s. It is established as part of the, what we would consider the Catholic tradition because that's the only church really around then. But when the, the Henry VIII takes the Church of England and declares it sovereign under his crown as opposed to the Roman bishop or Pope, uh, 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 at that point it becomes an Anglican or an English church. Okay? Now, the Puritans, and we've talked about this historically, the Puritans are doing their thing in the 1500s, and th there's uprising within England, this question of are we going in the Catholic tradition, are we going in the Protestant tradition, which was Calvinism for them right at that point in time, or is there going to be this middle ground that Queen Elizabeth is enforcing? The church goes in the middle ground. However, a lot of the preachers had either a leaning toward the Catholic faith or a leaning toward the Protestant faith or the Puritan faith is what it was called at that point in England. They were seeking a purer religion. That's what they would call themselves. Protestant originally was a derogative term. It was a label. There are a bunch of protesters. They're protesting God. They're protesting the church. They're protestants. Protestant was not a friendly label originally. The people who were protestants much preferred a label, for example, in English, of Puritans because they were after something that was more pure. So into this church comes a preacher by the name of Richard Clifton. Richard Clifton starts preaching there in 1586. He's called as the rector or the parson over the church. Now, as 
God would have it. Richard Clifton was a Puritan. He had Protestant leanings. He was very much in the vein, not of the Catholic tradition, but a a Protestant tradition. What did that mean practically? What would it mean to the congregation? Well, it meant the following. Instead of a a, a Catholic, uh, very formal, structured church service uh, with very little preaching at the time, there was an Anglican service that was an Anglican prayer book that put the, the general service into English Less formal than the Catholic service, but still having a lot of Catholic uh, 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 accoutrements, um, um, aspects, okay? And so, uh, for example, kneeling when you take communion, doing the cross, sign of the cross when you're baptizing. These are some Catholic, uh, wearing the garb, the robes. That was a really hang-up issue for a lot of the Puritans and, and the Protestants. But... Richard Clifton comes in and he doesn't really care as much for the Catholic stuff. In fact, doesn't care at all. He's very strongly puritanical. And so he starts teaching and preaching and, and, and it's a lot more preaching oriented. You know, the, the wonderful sermon like we heard this morning doesn't get done back then in an Anglican church. Bible study wasn't as intense in the Anglican church. But for Richard Clifton, that was an ideal service. But for the fact that we had instrumental music, he would have loved being in our service this morning. Okay? Now, we continue. Richard Clifton starts at this church in 1586. Let me tell you a little bit about him as a preacher. He was a very powerful preacher who held Puritan beliefs. He was so powerful that there was a little kid, a little kid by the name of uh, uh, William Bradford, who had been orphaned, lived nine miles away. Do you know what he'd do every Sunday? A 12-year-old kid on his own, to the scorn and derision of his uncles that he lived with and everybody else, would walk nine, walk nine miles to church to hear this guy preach and turn around and walk home. Okay, I've put three kids past that 12-year-old age so far. And i got to tell you, sometimes it's hard to get them to walk down the stairs to get in the car. Okay? And they love God. Don't get me wrong. And lest I judge my children too harshly, there have been a few days in my life where it's been very difficult to roll out of bed and to go worship the Lord. I'll confess that to you right now. We're looking at going on a family vacation. Do you know how easy it is when you go on vacation on the Lord's Day? You say, eh, vacation. I mean, do you want God to take a vacation from you? No. But for some reason, we feel comfortable taking a vacation from Him and from worship. It it convicted me to to restudy about a 12-year-old kid who will walk nine miles. It also convicted me. I'm so thankful we have some wonderful preachers, starting with David Fleming, including Stephen Trammell, including Scott Riling, and and so many others who have graced our pulpit here that make it worth getting up and coming to hear. Stephen will also be preaching for... Um, uh, David, while David's in Indonesia for two weeks. So he's here one Sunday and then in the pulpit the next two. 
So we get that triple blessing and you can be praying for his prep because that's on top of all the rest of his job duties. Clifton's a powerful preacher. He holds Puritan beliefs. And because he holds Puritan beliefs, they don't mesh well with the power structure of the Anglican church. So do you know what happens? After 19 years in the pulpit, after 19 years of baptizing families, of being there and doing funerals for families in a small community, what happens? Bam! He gets fired. (laughs) Or in the sense of the sermon this morning, ping! And he ducks and goes the other way. He gets fired. If you're listening to this on the internet and you want to know what that is, you have to go to the cfbc.org website and check out the sermon this morning. It'll be worth your time. After 19 years of preaching, he gets fired. What's he to do? Well, there were a group of Puritans in these four little towns I've been talking to you about that were secretly meeting in homes. They were meeting in home churches. In fact, some of them were not doing that well at going to real church. One of them in particular had been written up. Remember, you get fined if you don't show up for church in England at a proper British church. So in nearby Scrooby is the home of William and Mary Brewster. The Brewsters are the manor lords. They have the manor house for that area, which we have part of a picture of, but this is a 1900 picture of the Scrooby Village with the idea that it hasn't changed much between the 1600 time period we're looking at and 300 years later. So this is what we're talking about, a small little British village There is a manor house that presides over the area. The manor house itself has been torn down except for one wing. And that wing is still here. That is the manor house. And Clifton, Richard Clifton, starts pastoring the house church that's meeting at Scrooby Manor Home. At the home of William and Mary Brewster. I would love to meet the Brewsters. I wish... Is that my picture that's fuzzy? I guess maybe it is. I would love to meet the Brewsters because they're very wonderful people by all historical accounts. Here they are. They, they're, they're sort of big wigs, but out of conviction for Scripture, they start a house church that the authorities should not know anything about because it's a criminal activity. And within that house church, a preacher gets fired up the road. They recognized his strong preaching. They bring him into their house church. What they really do is say, why don't Mr. Clifton, Pastor Clifton, you and your wife and your kids come live with us? Because you see, when he got fired, he didn't just lose his job. He lost his house. Okay, The the parsonage was gone. So Brewsters, the Brewsters say, well, come live with us. And, oh, by the way, we have a secret house church that meets here and we'd love to have you as the pastor. And so, through God's providence, this home church opens up and here it is, an opportunity for him to pastor. Not only does he pastor, but soon they add another house guest, a fellow named James Robinson, who comes in. We might call it an executive pastor, but it's the teacher. He's not 
the chief pastor, but he's one who teaches hand in hand with the pastor. Does that make sense? So James Robinson is there. By the way, about this time, guess who turns 18? That little William Bradford kid that's been walking nine miles. And now he doesn't have to walk nine miles. It's a little closer to go to the Scrooby House Church, so he's going there. And the Brewsters say, Aw, just move in with us. Your uncles are giving you a hard time anyway. And we'll give you schooling. We'll teach you Latin and Greek and Hebrew so that you can read the word in its original languages. So this kid, 18 years old, still on fire for God with a heart for his word, he moves in. Things start heating up. Word gets around the community. Something goofy's going on at the manor house. You know them. I'll bet they're separatists. I'll bet they've separated themselves from the Church of England. None of them are going to church. I haven't seen them attend. I think we need to write them up. I think we need to alert the authorities. I think, I think something's going on. And sure enough, the word gets out and the authorities start looking at things a lot uh, uh, more closely. And so in 1606... A meeting is called at the house among the pastor, the teacher, and the, 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 the Brewsters. Uh, William Bradford, they let the 18-year-old, I guess at this point he's a little older than that kid, show up. And they have a meeting and they discuss what should we do. And they said, let's join together. Let's make a pact right now, an agreement. We're going to join together to shake off this yoke. And this is a direct quote. Shake off this yoke of anti-Christian bondage. Let's just, let's bond together. Let's do it. Said, we're going to form a church. We'll formally agree that we're a church that's going to walk in all his ways made known whatsoever it should cost. That's a gutsy move. Because it can cost you your life. In London, Puritan separatists that separate off and form their own church are being viewed treasonous and are being put to death by the government. This is separated from London by uh, Sherwood Forest, Robin Hood fame. Um, uh, but uh, it's, it's in the Midlands, but the word still filters out and things aren't looking good. So if they're going to do this, do you know what they decide they need to do? They need to leave. They need to go find a better place to live. So they decide that as, as different ones are being arrested and the word's getting out and the problems are reaching a pinnacle, that they need to move. And if they are, we'll go back to our picture, they're right here in the Midlands, the Eastern Midlands. They're going to go from there over to Holland, Amsterdam, the Netherlands, where there's religious freedom. Or even Jacobius Arminius that we studied years ago is even able to argue against Calvinism. And there's a certain degree of religious freedom there. And some other Brits had already moved there. So there were a few English-speaking churches already starting in Amsterdam. Now, the problem is, how do you move from here to there? Think about it. You cannot call up U-Haul and get one. I mean, if you wanted to move to Holland, it'd be tough today, wouldn't it? How about trying to do it with no one recognizing it? Because it's illegal for you to leave the country without the king's permission. 
So you go to immigrate. Uh, King, I'd like to move to Holland. Why? Well, we've started this church, and basically we're traitors. <laughs> uh, he, no, you don't get to go. Instead, we'll lock you up, and we'll confiscate everything you have. So what do you do? Well, they start quietly. I mean, they got to sell everything. You, you can't take your sheep and goats with you. It, you're going to have enough trouble slipping off in the dead of night without, eh, eh, eh. where are you going? Oh, nowhere. Eh. And think about it. What are they going to do? So they have the Hidden Church Neighborhood Yard Sale. They basically start selling off everything they can. But they can't just say, here's our church yard sale. This is a hidden church. We're not even, we don't want to tell you, right? They sell everything and they head over to St. Botolph's Stone where they're going to catch a boat. They've hired this guy to take him over there. They've paid him or said they would pay him. And this boat skipper's agreed to do it even though it's illegal. St. Botolph's Stone, that's a port town real close by. Y'all recognize it? St. Botolph was this fella who started a church there, that's the stone, in like the six, seven, eight hundred, something in that range. Oh, by this point, they don't call it St. Botolph's Stone. Isn't that a bit long for a town name? You could shorten it to Botolph's Stone, I guess, take out the saint. But Botolph's Stone, even that gets kind of old. So they've just turned it into Bowstone, Boston. So they sell everything and head to Boston. <laughs> But this is Boston, England. It is what later people would name Boston, New England after. You've got, so you've got Boston, Old England, and Boston, New England. All right? But St. Botolph Stone. So they go there. This is 1607 at this point, but they have problems escaping. See, they're all hiding in the marshlands right there. They're waiting for the boat to appear. The boat comes around the corner, the ship that's going to take them to the Netherlands. They get on the ship. They get ferried out there in little boats. Okay? Their heart is right. They pay the captain the money. And it turns out to be a sting operation. Captain takes the money and as soon as he's got it... He blows the whistle, all the authorities show up, everybody's arrested. Captain keeps the money. Boy, it's hard to serve God, isn't it? Ding! And their little duck goes the other way. That sermon's going to stick with me for a while. Um, that's what happens to them. That's what God had in store for them there. And the reaction in the words of one of the people... Their desires were set on the ways of God and to enjoy His rules or ordinances. But they rested on His providence and knew whom they had believed. They rested on His providence. They rested. This is, bless you. This is exactly, which by the way is from St. Gregory in the 600s after sneezing, if you want to go back and hear that church history class. Uh, as a way to avoid the bubonic plague, he thought. Okay. Um, the, uh, uh, I should not digress. I got up at 2.30 this morning, so I'm, I'm ADD enough to change the subject on myself repeatedly. Um, 
but enough of that. Let's go back to class. Um, 1607, they're escaping. Ah, yeah, they rested on his providence. This is what David talked about this morning. He said, people who worry about the will of God and God revealing his will to him, he says, I just have a couple of questions. Don't you think God wants you to walk in his will? Remember he said that? When they say yes, he says, well, do you think he's going to hide it from you? Rest, relax, rest in his providence. They did that, but they also knew whom they had believed. God is reliable. That's not a phrase they pulled out of the air. That's a phrase they pulled from Paul. I know whom I have believed. He didn't say, I know what I've believed. He said, I know whom I have believed. And I'm persuaded he's able to keep that. I've committed to him until that day. And that's what they had. So 1608, they're in jail. The jailer lets a few of them out. He keeps six of them, including the ringleaders, a little bit longer. They get fined. And then they get dumped out and told, okay, go home. Of course, they have no home. They sold it. They have no bed. They sold it. They have no livestock. They have no way to really live through the winter without relying upon the neighbors who were probably a little bit incensed that these people would separate off because they're better than we are and are tighter with God. But that's what they have. 1608 comes and they decide to escape again. They have to wait till the spring to do it to get a boat. And this time they don't hire a, an English boat ship guy. They get a Dutch guy who's got to go home and may not have the ability to do a sting operation. This time they're all waiting in the marsh. They don't do it from Boston. They go to another place. But they're all waiting in the marsh. The boat comes. They see the ship. They get in the little rafts and, and john boats to go out there. But in the process of going out there, an army type, the, the local gendarmes, the, the police show up. Ron Hickman's there. Woo, 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 woo. Okay? The Dutch captain panics, says, pull up the anchor, and they start off. Of course, they only have about half the people. Most of the women and children have been left behind at this point in the marsh. The Dutch captain pulls the ship out. They head for Holland. But now here's where we are. They are going to go from here to here, Amsterdam. Bad storm. I mean, some people swim the English Channel there. Okay, Bad storm. 14 days later, bam, they land in Norway. But eventually, through the grace of God... Everybody gets out. In fact, the others that got arrested are the women and the children and the authorities are just fed up with them at this point and say, just get out. And so much like Pharaoh finally let the Israelites go, they, they get to leave. They didn't get to plunder the Egyptians, but they did get to leave. And they all meet up in Amsterdam. And these scrooby separatists spin from 1608 to 1620 in Amsterdam. And you want to know tight? They were tight, but they got even tighter. Because they're living in a foreign country. They don't really speak Dutch. They're the few English speakers there. 
and, 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 and there's just so much. They were bound together not just by their faith, but they were bound together by their society and their culture. They were very tight-knit. They ate their meals together. They were one of only three English-speaking churches in Amsterdam. We actually have some writings from their pastor, actually their teacher, Robinson. The pastor, Clifton, he dies during this time period. And Robinson, the teacher, becomes the new pastor, senior pastor. Robinson writes down and tells us about their worship services and what they were like. Here's what it would be. Starts out with either the pastor or the teacher leading a prayer. Then after that, they'd have Bible readings. And it would be several chapters of the Bible. And depending upon how much time they felt they had, whoever was reading it would pause while reading to explain some things. Okay? Then after that, they'd have a cappella, meaning no instruments, singing out of the Psalms, uh, Old Testament Psalms. And they would sing uh, those. After that, they would have a sermon. You thought, well, that was the reading of this. No, 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 man. These people, they wanted the word. And this could be a long sermon. Okay. After the sermon, they'd have communion on certain Sundays, but it would be a very informal communion. And anybody who was a candidate for baptism would be baptized. Then it would conclude with a collection for not just the staff and the church functions, but for the poor as well. And that's what would happen. Brewster, he sets up a printing press while they're there and starts printing out materials to send back to England. Gets in trouble because the Brits are able to infiltrate Holland and extend their influence enough to get him shut down. And then things within Holland, as that happens, other things start hitting a boiling point. They've been there 12 years, and you know what's happening to their kids? Their kids are turning Dutch. You know, back in England, someone said, hey, let's go out and eat. Okay, you want to go Dutch? Yeah. But once they're there, <laughs> once they're there, it just lost some of that charm. Okay? Um, sorry. Uh, <laughs> So they're there. Their kids are turning Dutch on them. Their kids are out there doing things kids from a proper British home should not do. It wasn't cricket. I don't know. It, it, they, they're very concerned that their children are becoming too worldly. And so they say, look, England's still exerting pressure here. Our children are getting too worldly. Not to mention the fact that Arminius is now dead, but there's rioting taking place, if you remember that lesson, as the Arminians are arguing against the uh, Calvinists. And this is where the ruling prince calls the Council of Dort and basically says it's Calvinism, not Arminianism. If you remember that, great. If you don't, it doesn't matter. The bottom line is, it doesn't matter for this story, the bottom line is the, the tension religiously, politically, and socially is all mounting. And they decide we're at a breaking point. We got to do something in 1620. So they consider what to do. And their preacher, Robinson, preaches a sermon, their pastor, on this passage out of Proverbs 22.3. Now, if you don't recognize the version, I'm using the Geneva Bible version because that is their version. This is the 1599 edition of the Geneva Bible. Their British English-speaking people using an English Bible will use what they were using to see what they were saying. A prudent man seeth the plague 
and hideth himself. But the foolish go on still and are punished. Now that's the preacher's sermon. And what he's saying is, if you've got wisdom and you see trouble in the future, do something about it. God didn't give you a brain so that you can take it off when you go into church. He gave you a brain to help you function. To better understand not just His glories, but His purposes in your life. So there's trouble ahead, we need to do something about it. So two of the folks at least go back to England. And they start negotiating with the London Company, which is part of the Virginia Trading Company. They start negotiating for a chance to have some land over in the New World so that they can start a brand new something. Virginia Trading Company, the London Company, is that uh, uh, red portion right there. It extends from South Carolina up to about uh, New York City, Manhattan. Okay? That's the land that the Virginia Trading Company had. These people negotiate and they finally get a deal put together to where they're going to be allowed to go there. They get ready and they start to go. In the process, we have the following. Ah, Here it is. Pastor Robinson says, here's his sermon. 1 Samuel 23, 3 and 4. David's men said unto David, Look, we be afraid here in Judah. How much more if we come to Keilah against the host of ye Philistines? Let me put this into common parlance for us. This is 21st century uh, uh, Houston speak. Okay, look. We're scared right now here in Judah where we're related to everybody. Can you imagine how bad it would be if we went over to Keilah where the Philistines are? That's going to be even worse. We're bad enough off here in Holland where we've got some English speakers or we're bad enough in England where our families are. Can you imagine if we go to this brand new world where we've already heard all the horror stories? They have Native Americans. Towns have been burned down. Villages have been destroyed. Women and children have been murdered in cold blood. So the pastor reads this passage, but he reads the second verse, that was for the fourth verse of the passage, where the Lord answers David after David asks the Lord for counsel again. And the Lord said, Arise, go down to Keilah. I'll deliver the Philistines into your hand. And they took that as a word from the Lord from their beloved pastor. These people are living, eating, breathing together. Separated out from everyone else. That's what their pastor told them was a word from the Lord. And so they decide to go. They're going to go. They get the deal worked out with the London company. They're allowed to settle anywhere between Virginia and and Manhattan. And they head over. They want to land in Virginia. They've heard there's the colony there, Roanoke area, and they think that may help them. They buy a boat called the Speedwell. By the way, the first wave to leave is 55 out of a congregation of 300. Congregation about this size. 55 are going to go. Some entire families, some husband goes, leaves wife and kids behind for the hard part. Sometimes wife and husband go, leave kids behind because they don't want the kids to die. I mean, they're not like necessarily 
they don't contact their Century 21 agent. You know, it's not, hey, Pat Hooker, can you find me a new house? I'm going to be on the East Coast. I'd like something a little too, uh, you know, not too roomy, but nice enough to have house church and preferably indoor bathrooms. It doesn't work that way. There aren't houses to be walked into. There aren't towns to be walked into. It's an unknown land that they're going to. So, 55 agree to leave. Pastor Robinson's going to stay behind and come with a later wave, he hopes. Truth be told, he dies and is not able to. There are subsequent waves that come. But Elder Brewster, remember William and Mary Brewster who had the manor house? He's the elder at this point. He's the leader who's going to take them over. William Bradford, the kid that would walk, the kid who loved the Lord and his word from age 12 on, he's going. These are the folks that are going. They buy a boat. They buy a boat called the Speedwell. If I'm crossing the Atlantic, I'd like that boat. Give me the speed well. I don't want the snail. I want the speed well. They buy the speed well and they arrange to rent a second boat because you don't cross the Atlantic in just one boat. Think about it. Even Columbus knew better than that. Nina, Pinta, and the Santa Maria. Do you know why you don't cross in one boat? Storms and problems. And the Coast Guard can't make emergency help. You may need to take one boat to fix one boat. You may need to take one boat to handle everybody if a boat crashes. One boat doesn't go. So they buy the Speedwell. It's a smaller boat. But they figure they can use it to fish offshore. And then they rent another boat called... I'll tell you in a minute. They have a tearful farewell... They all come together. Here was the passage that the pastor used for their farewell. Everything they did, they found Scripture. Everything they did, they lived in Scripture. Ezra 8.21 And there by the river, by Ahava, I proclaimed a fast that we might humble ourselves before our God and seek of Him a way, right way for us and for our children and for all our substance. That's what they were doing. They had a day of fasting. They humbled themselves before God and they sought God and said, God, we want a place. We want a place where we can serve you. We want a place for our children. We want a place for our offspring, for our substance. A place that's a right place, a right way for us. And you know the kid who's now a 20-something guy, William Bradford? He found a scripture for him too. He said, here's my scripture for us. It's found in the book of Hebrews. Young William Bradford finds Hebrews 11, 13 through 14. All these died in faith and received not the promises, but saw them afar off. These were all the champions of faith that were in Hebrews. They saw it afar off and believed them and received them thankfully and confessed that they were strangers and pilgrims. On the earth. He said, They that say such things declare plainly they seek a country. He said, That's what we are. We're pilgrims. The name stuck. We've been talking about the pilgrims. You see, they went back to England and they got, uh, not London, but in Southampton, they got their rental boat. 
It was called the Mayflower. And the Mayflower and the Speedwell set out for Virginia. They had a lot of problems. They had um, a letter from their pastor that they read. He you know, sealed it up, said, take this, read this before you go. Well, as you're about to embark from England, pastor's letter said, and the Lord in whom you trust and whom you serve, guide you with his hand, protect you with his wing, and show you his salvation and bring us together in this place if such be his will. And it was for some, but it wasn't for the pastor. He passed away. Well, they had two false starts and ultimately were not able to take the speed well. The speed well left behind, they still made the journey, though now by the time they're able to make it in the Mayflower, it's late in the season. It's not really safe to be going. It takes them 66 days to go 3,500 miles. I checked it. They were averaging two miles an hour, for those of you who are fastidious about these things. They land. They didn't make Virginia. They made, oops, Plymouth Rock. They got a little off. They landed Plymouth Rock, though, and while it wasn't where they planned on going, it sure seems to be what God planned for them to go. Because when they landed, they found this whole area cleared. And while Native Americans were supposed to be everywhere, for some reason they didn't see any for over a month. They were able to set up in a cleared area. There was fresh water. It just looked like it, it was waiting for someone to come. Oh, eventually, as they're out and about, they come across a few Native Americans here and there. But their landing is one that's safe. They don't land to a volley of errors. Arrows or eras. They land, they're able to, to, to start. And, and they set up a community. And the first thing they do is build a common house for worship. And they try to figure out how to live through the winter. And they're all meeting together. At this point, they've found some Native Americans that don't seem too friendly. And there's been some conflict. Though fortunately, they're fairly far off. They're not just around the tree. Okay? So they're sitting around and they're having a conversation trying to figure out how to get their troops together of what they need to do when just out in the middle of their village that they've just built walks Chief Somerset, a Native American, who just walks up to him and in English says, Greetings, Englishman, do you have any beer? <laughs> I did not make this up. I did not make this up. He had learned some broken English from some trappers. And he had learned a love for beer. And so Chief Somerset sees this community being set up there. He hears them. He knows their English. He just saunters right in. They're stunned. They didn't have lookouts. All of a sudden they turn around and here's this Native American. The women, the children, they'd never even seen them before. He says, Hello, Englishman. Got any beer? <laughs> Wasn't just him. There was another Native American they met shortly thereafter named Squanto who came and Squanto had been kidnapped as a kid and actually taken over to England and had escaped and come back. But he spoke really good English and he knew all the ways of the Native Americans. And Squanto it was who explained to them that there had been this warlike tribe that had inhabited that very area of Plymouth Rock or Cape Cod. 
And just right before the pilgrims came, some weird disease came and wiped them all out and they all thought it was haunted, so everybody left and left it right and ready for someone to come in. Squanto taught them how to farm. He taught them how to trap. He taught them what to do. They had Squanto over and they had Thanksgiving. Now, it's not necessarily the way we do it, fourth Thursday of November or last Thursday of November, okay? That didn't happen until actually President Lincoln was the first one who said it that way. And then it quit being that. And then Grant reset it there. And then it quit being that. And then Teddy Roosevelt said it there. And it has been there basically ever since. But they just had a day of Thanksgiving. And it's not something new to them. It's something that, that they would picked up actually in Holland. Holland people would find days that they would just set aside and dedicate Thanksgiving to God. Yes, they probably had turkey. What happened to the pilgrims? I don't know. Ask Stephen. He's teaching next week. <laughs> <clears throat> Points for home. <laughs> um, Stephen and I have not plotted out next week yet, so don't hold him to that. He may like say, I don't want to do that, but I think it'd be a really good lesson. The Puritan tradition, uh, out of the Puritan tradition in America will come the Great Awakening. But, but I, I, I think it might be really important for us to look at how the Puritans lived because, and compare it to how we live. What was right and wrong for them compared to what's right and wrong for us? It's some interesting differences and some great similarities. And then uh, we'll move on from, from there. But don't hold him to that. Points for home. Follow God. Okay, That may just sound really stupid and easy. But I want you to pause for a minute and think about it. Follow God because wherever he leads is where you want to be. That's what David said this morning. These are the plans you want. Don't be a human who thinks... Yourself is the center of God in all creation. God does not exist for us, as David said. We exist for His glory. God does not exist to fit into our plans. We exist to fit into His. So follow God. He may lead you beside quiet waters. He may lead you in a dark valley, in the shadow of death. But wherever He leads you, you don't need to fear any evil because He is leading you. He's with you. His rod and His staff, they comfort you. He's the one who will prepare a table in the presence of your enemies. He's the one who will anoint your head with oil. He's the one who will make your cup overflow. And He's the reason that we will dwell in His house forever through the blood of Jesus Christ. So follow God. Just make a commitment right now. I'm going to do a better job of following him. I really am. I'm going to figure out what he wants for me because he's going to show it to me. And I'm going to do it. Even if it takes some guts. God never leaves us to fend for ourselves. So you can trust him. You can lean on him. You can watch him work. You can trust in the Lord with all of your heart. Lean not on your own understanding, but in all your ways acknowledge Him, and He will make your path straight. Out of Proverbs. But do you know why that's important? Because you may think you're following Him, and you may, you may digress and go the wrong way, but you've got the promise from God that when you're leaning on Him and you're trusting Him, if you make a wrong turn just because you thought God was leading you there and maybe you were wrong, but you sure were, look, He'll make it straight. He will make our paths straight ones. And finally, 
let's rear our children in the nurture and admonition of God. If your children are already reared, then rear your grandchildren. <laughs> Pray for them. Do something. Go back and fix where you messed up with your kids. I don't know. But, but Paul says in Ephesians for, for us to do that. And it's not because he was just wordy. It's a charge. Because one of the things that happens to the pilgrims, some of them, it's not a good story. Some of them lose track of God in the generations to come. Would you pray with me? Our God and our Father, we are humbled to be part of your plan. We are humbled to be your children. We're humbled that you would pay for us with your very blood. We're humbled that you would care to know our names. We're humbled that you know the number of hairs on our head. And we confess to you that in spite of all of this provision from you, we still seem to wander off on our own and seem to be much more comfortable relying on our resources instead of you and your plan and your direction. And we confess that as sin. And we ask not only for you to uh, uh, help us understand the forgiveness we have in Christ, but we also ask you to help us understand the resource we have in, in our walk with the Holy Spirit and what you've put out for us. Help us see that, Lord, and help us be different. Help us all be different from this moment forth. Help us from this moment forth, Lord, more than any other time in our life to open ourselves to your Spirit working within us to following you, to fitting into your plan. This is our prayer through Jesus. Amen.